0: Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. This episode benefits from the exciting public programming we do at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies. Since the coronavirus surged last spring, we've been hosting a series of virtual forums on the subject of COVID capitalism. These talks examine the chronic racial and economic inequality made so apparent by the pandemic. They also assess the prospects for systemic change. A conversation featuring Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal marked a high point in these discussions and forms the basis for today's podcast. Interviewing Jayapal is Deepak Bargava, distinguished lecturer at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies and longtime friend of Jayapal. Deepak is a policy expert on issues of poverty, economic justice, racial equity, and immigration. Welcome Deepak. As I mentioned, Congresswoman Jayapal is a friend of yours and you've worked together. Please tell us a bit about how you came to know Jayapal and about your collaborative work with the Congresswoman in the years before she considered running for office.
1: Thanks, Paula. I met Pramila in the post 9-11 period, when she created a, a new organization, Hate Free Zone, in Washington state to defend the rights of vulnerable immigrants in a period of crackdowns on civil liberties and immigrant rights, especially for Muslims, South Asians, immigrants from Africa and the Middle East that followed. The organization she created evolved over time to become One America, which is a statewide coalition in Washington state that anchors not only struggles for immigrant rights, but also battles for higher wages, worker rights, expanded health care, and in recent years, environmental justice too. One America was one of the crucial leaders in the national network that my organization, Community Change, built at the national level to fight for immigration reform federally called the Fair Immigration Reform Movement. So Pramila and I advocated together, organized and campaigned together, and we got arrested together in civil disobedience on more than one occasion. And uh, I believe that I was the cause of Pramila's (laughs) first jail time, something I'm very proud of.
0: Well, it's really the work that both of you have been doing that I had in mind when I dreamt up the title for this podcast, Reinventing Solidarity. So let's let's turn to uh, your fascinating conversation with her.
1: So we're thrilled and lucky to have you with us today, Pramila. Welcome.
0: Thank you so much,
2: Deepak. And I just have to say, You know, there's very few people in the country that are as thoughtful, strategic with the organizing background that you have, and we are desperately going to need those. (laughs) uh, Assuming we get to a place on uh, in November that we want to be in, and so um, thank you for your incredible leadership.
1: You have a new book, which I highly recommend to everybody. It's called "Use the Power You Have: A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change," and in that, you tell Your own incredible story as an immigrant, as a woman of color, moving from the outside, the social movements that propel change on the outside to working on the inside. And you're the first South Asian woman to be elected to Congress. So I'm wondering if you could just talk to us a little bit about your journey and what it's been like to make change and move from the outside to the inside
2: yeah well, you know as a as an organizer on the outside for almost two decades, to be totally frank, I was quite dismissive of politics and and being in office. and I remember talking to you at various times when I would sort of think about it and then you know, say to myself, no, I'd rather be trying to make change on the outside. That's really where I feel the power is. But what I realized, sort of in a flash of um, of, you know, clarity maybe uh, one year was that we organizers, and I started the largest immigrant advocacy organization in Washington State, ran it for 12 years, worked on you know getting the Seattle to be the first fit major city in the country to pass a $15 minimum wage, often pushing progressive ideas long before they were popular and working with people on the ground who were deeply involved and rooted in their own experiences. What I realized suddenly is, wait a second, maybe we're thinking about this all wrong. Maybe we have to think about elected office as an organizing platform. And really think about how we get power on the inside as well. And over time, I think we'll change these words outside, inside. I just haven't found the right set of words, so it's shorthand right now. But I think we need organizers on the inside. That was my theory of change, is that if we had organizers on the inside, at the tables where policy decisions were being made, but also organizing on the inside and using the platform to help move organizing on the outside as well. It's a big platform and particularly as a member of Congress, it's an opportunity to really push bold ideas, to enhance and support outside movement organizing and to coordinate strategy Inside outside strategies so that we can get big progressive policies. That was the theory of change and tied to that was the idea that If we had more people in office who actually represented the interests of the vast majority of people that we would actually get more engagement in our democracy. And so that was what I ran on. I first ran for the state Senate. That was sort of like the opportunity to see if I thought we could really do what we wanted. And I served the most, I was the state senator for the most diverse legislative district in Washington state for two years. And then this seat for Congress opened up and I ran for it. And now I serve as the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus which is really, I think, the organizing platform for progressives inside of Congress. We represent about 40% of the Democratic caucus. And I think that transition, I haven't stopped being an organizer. I still describe myself as an organizer. Honestly, I find that many members of Congress don't think about organizing on the inside. It's not so simple as just introducing a bill. If you actually wanna get things done, you have to do a lot of organizing.
1: Well, and it feels like you arrived at the national scene in Congress at, at a pivotal time in our history, really hard time in our history. And so I'm wondering if you could reflect on this fraught moment we now find ourselves in, what's at stake from your perspective in the election, what's our task in this next period of time really to save and restore our democracy?
2: Yes, that small question. (laughs) Well, I was elected on the same night as Donald Trump was elected. And somebody, I think it was the nation or Mother Jones said, you know, I am the anti-Trump. They deem me the anti-Trump. This was 2017. It was a couple of years before the squad was elected. We didn't have the majority in the House. Then, of course, we got the majority in the House in 2018. But even at the beginning, Deepak, I think one of the two, two things I would say, that are background to our conversation. The first is, you know, it's relatively easy to be an opposition party. And I think we unite more quickly around being an opposition party. It's harder to be a proposition party. But I don't think that we as Democrats can be just an opposition party at any time. We have to be a proposition party. And so even during those first two years when we had no power in the House, really very little power in the House, in the minority, I felt it was really important to draw a vision of what we stand for and draw people into that vision. Medicare for all, a green new deal, fair fair economy that works for everybody, getting money out of politics. I mean, these are critically uh, climate change. You know, These are critically important issues. And of course, immigration reform, one of the things you and I have worked on so closely for a long time. The second is that I just don't think you inspire people just by being against things. I mean, certainly Trump has been so outrageous that we have inspired a lot of people to come out and vote just to get him out of office. But I think you got to have more than that to really hold people. The second thing is that Donald Trump was both a symptom and a cause. And I think that's very important to remember. Even before Donald Trump came into office, even before COVID-19 hit, We had a situation where 40% of Americans didn't even have 400 bucks in their bank account. Even before COVID hit, we had 87 million Americans who were either uninsured or underinsured. And so you go into these moments of deep crisis, the Donald Trump presidency and a constitution destroying racist xenophobe, the COVID health pandemic. That has now taken 220,000 lives in our country, and eight and a half million people now have pre-existing conditions from having contracted COVID. 50 million people, the economic crisis, 50 million Americans who have filed for unemployment, and 27 million who lost their health care at the same time that they lost their jobs, and then of course the deep reckoning that is still roiling our country because it is so deeply institutionalized that racism and white supremacy and anti-blackness is built into every one of our structures. And so we're seeing an awakening, but we haven't yet seen the commitment to change. And so that is the moment that we're in. And I think it's very important to recognize that Donald Trump is a cause of some of the worst suffering we've seen in, in recent memory, cruelty targeting xenophobia of certain groups of people, a complete lack of any caring for a constitution or for the responsibility of a president to look after everybody and not politicize things, plus very destructive systemic things that he's instituted. But he's also a symptom. People were frustrated in 2016 with the political system and with both parties. They were frustrated with Democrats for not taking bold action to rectify the issues of working people. And I think that is just incredibly important. Now, last thing I'll say on this is, um, and this is like the crux of everything I know you wanna talk about today. So hopefully we'll have time to go more detail into each of these things, but the COVID crisis has just worsened inequality in this country dramatically. I mean, the wealth of billionaires has now reached a high of $10.2 trillion during this crisis. And the RAND Corporation just came out with a very interesting study that looked at income over the last 30 years. And since the 1970s, a total of $50 trillion has been transferred from the bottom 90% of Americans to the top 1% of Americans. In real everyday terms for working people, it means that if you're a full-time wage earner, in, in America. And if you're earning $50,000 now, just for your salary to have kept pace with GDP and inflation, you would need to be at ninety-two dollars to $103,000. So workers are earning 50% of what they really should be earning. And that money is going to the wealthiest.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you um, talked about the role that progressives have played kind of in this inside outside way that you've been part of, because I do think it's a pivotal way in which change occurs. And you could just say a little bit about the progressive caucus, because I feel like there's been a, a revolution that you've been part of, a leader of, to really change, to bridge that disconnect between where the people are and where the elected representatives are. And now to see some of you organizing to kind of have leverage. I'm just curious if you could talk about the growth of the caucus and what role it might play.
2: Yeah, well, the Progressive Caucus was established several decades ago by Bernie Sanders, Maxine Waters, Pete DeFazio, some other really great progressive members of the House. It operated largely as a social club for a long time. There were no real rules for the caucus. There were no real structures around it. When Keith Ellison and Raul Grijalva became co-chairs, they started to put some of those things into place. And that was just two years before I came in. When I came in and Keith recruited me to be the first to run for first vice chair, I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, it's an enormous amount of work, but uh, Mark Pocan was co-chair along with Grijalva. And we started, to see that there was actually, I mean, I came in and I was shocked as an organizer. I'm like, where's my infrastructure? You know, Where are my tools that allow me to organize? And I'm kind of an infrastructure gal, as you know. Um, and so we then got to work with a number of people building a couple of things. On the outside, we built the Congressional Progressive Caucus Center, which is a 501c3 organization, and the Progressive Caucus Action Fund, which is a 501c4 organization that can do some political grassroots lobbying. That was very important because that coordinates all the progressive think tanks, all the progressive groups, and is able to both be proactively and reactively useful to members of Congress to counter the influence of lobbyists. On the inside, we had, we had one staff person for the entire Progressive Caucus, 100 members. It was ridiculous. We hadn't raised our dues in, I don't know, like a decade. You know, we had no staff. We, people like kind of came and went. And so we increased our dues. We hired more staff, including a communications person, a policy person, et cetera, that can respond to members of Congress. And this year, and then also on the PAC side, we... Uh, And we got a number of new members, so we increased our numbers. On the PAC side, we realized we needed to elect more progressives and we needed to get engaged early. And so we were raising about $300,000 on the PAC side. We dramatically ramped up that. We we said no corporate PAC contributions. The CPC PAC used to take corporate PAC contributions. We said no more. We're only funded by small-dollar donors. And we now have raised $4 million in the last cycle. So we were able to elect progressives like Mondaire Jones, like Jamal Bowman, like Cori Bush. We're fighting for Kari Eastman, for Beth Doleo, for uh, you know people in Texas, Julie Oliver, Mike Siegel, et cetera, Candace Valenzuela. That will help us to grow our ranks. So the last thing we're doing now is trying to get some more reforms through. I have a reforms package that a, a, a small committee has put together that will hopefully allow us to leverage power more effectively in the next Congress and stop people from using a progressive label if you're not actually gonna vote like a progressive.
1: So one thing that what you talked about really made me think about is the question of accountability. You know, there's a little bit of this debate about how much do we look back and at the caging of children, at family separation, at the treatment of refugees or in the case of race and racial justice around the violation of that and questions around reparations and so forth over our history. And I guess just to state my own view is we kind of need to, to not do that thing of pretending everything didn't happen previously and just try and reset. And, but I'm curious how you think about, because it's such a, such extraordinary harms have been done that have not really been accounted for. So how do you think about that part of the, the job?
2: we we have to we cannot allow this president to get away with what he's done and i know the temptation is going to be great for a president biden to just sort of try to bring the country together but i really think that to bring the country together you have to acknowledge those harms it's why i'm also supporting that we take up a reparations bill you know we have to deal with the issue of slavery in this country and what that has led to in terms of the effects on people. I think that, you know, HR 40 and HR 100 sort of work together, a commission to study this and, and sort of a, 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 a process for people to go through what this means and educate people, but also give real accountability to what happened. And I think we've got to do that with Donald Trump. I mean, this man, there is so much corruption, Deepak, that I... I have run out of words to describe this government. I, I, you know, this administration, I have, I, I, I cruel doesn't do it. You look at, 525 kids that the department of homeland security is telling us they can't find the parents for you look at the thousands of families who were separated you look at the way in which the arms of government from the department of justice to the health and human services to secret service i mean the ways in which money was funneled from the u.s taxpayer to donald trump and his entities and his families and all of the corruption that was engaged there not to mention the soliciting of foreign governments to interfere in our elections. If we don't address that and we just move on, the next dictator can come along, the next xenophobe can come along, the next corrupt president can come along and do the same things all over again. And look, our court system, We have to do a lot of court reforms. We have to do democracy reforms. I may have forgotten to mention that very important thing when I was talking about the priorities. That has to be the first thing we do. And we've got to, we've really got to address the fact that people don't trust our courts anymore because they have been packed by the right wing with unaccountable, unqualified judges. And that is a real problem. So I just believe we have to, we have to hold Donald Trump accountable We are not going to be able to heal and unite and move forward without that.
1: Just curious, as you step back from our current democratic, small d democratic crisis in the country, and you think about Trump and Trumpism and the fact that it's not going away, that there will be anti-democratic forces, anti-small d democratic forces, white nationalism on the surge, et cetera kind of how do we think about kind of a multiracial democracy and really building it for the long term? What do you think of beyond recovering ground? How do we think about what needs to be in place to really move us to a very, very different place than we are now?
2: Well, I think we have to think about power, right? This is all of our organizing work is about power. And we have both had power taken from us and we have given it away. Both things are true. So the electoral process and even I as an organizer, you know, I've mixed feelings right about the electoral process and, and getting involved in democracy and so we try to keep ourselves pure by staying away from it. But that is actually giving away power. So we do have to figure out how to inspire people to engage in the electoral process and to vote and to recognize that not voting is actually giving your vote and your power to somebody else. So that is very important. And I have a lot of conversations with young people who I feel terrible for, like what we've given to them, why would people have faith, right? Except we're here and we're fighting. And I think about Sojourner Truth and I think about all the amazing people in the history of the world that have achieved change. They didn't step away, they stepped into. And so that is really important. And then the, the second piece is that organizing part, which isn't at all about elections. It is about the everyday work of getting government to respond to the people. That is policy advocacy, it's organizing, it's reforming our tax structure, it's making these bold structural changes. But a lot of times you don't have power unless you have both of those things. That's why I got into elected office at the end of the day because I realized, wait a second, what would it be like how can we imagine a a government that actually is representative and inspiring where you don't have to explain what it means to be a black or a brown or an indigenous person or a low-wage worker that you actually have people who are grounded in the principles of community and recognize that we're all better off when we're all better off that's the basic principle here and i think leading with love and with generosity and recognizing that these times that seem so incredibly difficult, that are incredibly difficult, where we're being hit on every level. The thing I try to do is just wake up in the morning and first think about all the people that came before that fought for the rights that we have today and what they sacrificed. And then to put myself in the mind frame of we always win with generosity and abundance, never with scarcity and fear, And our job is to not leave a single thing on the table when we are fighting for people to get what they deserve, dignity, respect, a decent life, and all the things that go along with that.
1: Mm. So inspiring and I feel channeled through you the words of one of the heroes we lost this year, Congressman John Lewis, who I feel like was a colleague to both of us and a tribune for that, that very vision of social justice as a vocation something that happens every day, we fight for every day, and that we live in how we treat other people. So thank you for those inspiring words. I want to thank Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She's the author of Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. She's a brilliant progressive leader, and I have learned so much, as always, from engaging with you and the whole community at CUNY and the larger progressive community grateful for your leadership and sending you strength for these uh, important weeks and months ahead. Thank you, my sister.
2: Thank you so much, Deepak. You are a gift to all of us. Thank you.
0: Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working-class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.